of the Lord to manifest his spirit among us as we come together as the church. And I know I've been saying this a lot lately, but I want to encourage and challenge us all who are present here this morning and those who would perhaps watch later to enter into this place with a sense of faith. And Kevin said it this morning as we gathered to pray. Oh man, thank you so much. That it's the Lord's desire to speak to his people. Do you guys believe that? Yes. So if, it's, if we believe that, then there should be a level of expectation and a measure of faith that is ample to meet that expectation, if you will, or meet, meet that truth with a, with a sense of expectation, like God will speak to us. When we come in here today, God is going to speak. And so we gather, and I just want to say during our time of singing this morning as well, um, you know, if there was extra space and maybe some portions that felt uncomfortable in those moments, church, engage with us. Engage with the musicians, but more so engage with the Spirit of God. Because God wants to speak something to us that we need to hear. And, it, and it, it's not to say that the Word of God isn't sufficient to teach us and to train us because we know that it is. But there is also an added measure of grace that's given to the church, which is God's spirit and God's voice. And it's God's intent to speak to his church. And so that's just an encouragement to you all. And, and I believe that the Lord has called us to foster this culture um, more diligently. And so we're aiming to do so. So I just wanted to point that out as a, a way of encouragement to you all. Um, so that we can engage together, okay? With faith? Yeah, sure, just toss it. Let's make this cool on the video. That would have been much cooler. Thanks, Kev. I did almost drop it. I heard that. All right. If you are already there, thank you. If you're not. So I'm going to do something this morning um, that I'm hoping serves the text really well. Uh, I'm going to take chapter 5 and 6 and just cover the two chapters in one fell swoop this morning. And before we do our reading, I also I want to begin by something that I've already said and point out to us as a church that in this moment of Israel's history with uh, Zerubbabel and Yeshua, which is the, the two men primarily that we've been following up to this point, and I know it probably hasn't quite felt that way because not only are we not really concentrating on the specific individuals, but we've had a couple of weeks where I've not been in the book of Ezra. And so we might need to get a little bit of that momentum again. But I don't want to go all the way back. But just a reminder, three character arcs that follow us through Ezra and Nehemiah. Zerubbabel and Joshua, or Zerubbabel specifically, whose work is to restore the worship to the people of God. And then we'll see Ezra, who's about to come onto the scene next week. And his work is to restore the law to the people of God. And then we'll see Nehemiah, and Nehemiah's work is to restore the city walls. Or we could say the distinctives of the community of the people of God it would be another way that we might see Nehemiah's work. So just a reminder that those three individuals, there's narratives that are happening thus far. Um, but in addition to that, as I said weeks ago, that in this moment of, of redemptive history, because of, you might remember two weeks ago where we talked about opposition and I, and I spoke about how, how opposition to the work of the Lord is the way of the enemy. And we saw through chapter four that it was years after years after decades after decades of opposition against the Lord's work. And it ended up resulting in the ceasing of the work by God's people. And what we're going to find here this morning is that this is the moment where the Lord raises up Haggai and Zechariah to begin to stir the hearts of the people again to re-engage with the work. And I would love to just take the time to then kind of shoot off and we could do a study through Haggai and a study through Zechariah, but I'm not going to do that at this moment. But the good news is that you own Bibles and you guys can do that on your own. Um, so, but this is that moment, and it's, sometimes it's just really helpful to actually know, like, okay, it, chronologically speaking, on God's historical timeline, this is where these people, and this is the situation that they're speaking into. So, what I'm going to do today is I'm actually going to read portions of Haggai, and I'm going to read 
portions of Ezra chapter 5 and 6, although not all of it. But prior to me doing that, I just want to remind us about something, and I'm going to piggyback on it today. When I began in week one, I spoke about the sovereign providence of God on the basis that God absolutely and certainly is always faithful to his promises. Okay. We say that a lot and you know that, but let me just say that one more time. God is faithful to his promises. That is a comfort. That is a hope. That is something that we as children of God lay our pillow, heads on our pillows each and every night knowing that God is faithful, that God is faithful, that God's word will come to pass, that it most certainly will be as he says it will be. Aren't we thankful for that? Amen. He is certainly faithful to his promises. And I, I just felt like the necessity for us, look at this guy just driving through our kids' area. I just felt the necessity for us today, church, to, to hold, all right, we'll let that happen, and then I'll come back. <laughs> I just think it's interesting how people just sometimes do what they want. But the necessity for us to, to not only, listen, church, okay, come back to me. This is my fault. Come back to me. But not, not only, please hear me, hear what I'm saying. Not only hear it and know it here, but to live it out here. And this is really what I'm aiming for today, that we would live out with a surety from the basis of the knowledge that we've received from the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's look at Ezra chapter five. Actually, begin with me, please, sorry, in Haggai Haggai is towards the end of the Old Testament, comes right, back, right before Zechariah. The two are back to back. And I thought it would be neat to read Haggai because essentially, Haggai 1, which I'm going to read pretty much 1 through 8, that is what Haggai is, is recording here in verses 1 through 8 is essentially what is being recorded in verse 1 of Ezra 5, but it gives us more detail. So let's begin with the word of the Lord from the book of Haggai, chapter 1, verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. And then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Verse 7, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. Skip down to verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. And he says this, I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. Now let's look at the book of Ezra. As I read this, church, I want to just say to you, 
let's see if we can catch together or be mindful of the references here where we see the, the will of man working and we see the will of God working, sometimes even in tandem or apart from one another. But I want us just to have our attention drawn to this. So let's look at five, beginning in verse three. At the same time, so this is directly now following what I just read. The work has resumed. And it says this, at the same time, Tatnai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Chef Barzoni and their associates came to them and spoke to them thus, who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? Does this sound familiar? They also asked them this, what are the names of the men who are building this building? Verse five, but the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. Now skip down to chapter six, verse six, and everything that I just skipped is essentially the letter that Tat and I wrote. After posing this question to the Israelites, he writes a letter. Then the Israelites speak and they say, this is who we are. We are servants of God. We're obeying under the, under the decree of Cyrus to build this home, etc., etc. And so Tat and I re, then relays this to Darius the king, and this is Darius's response. Verse six of chapter six. Now therefore, Tatnai, governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar Bozenai and your associates, the governors who are in the province beyond the river, keep away. Let the work on this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river and whatever is needed, bulls, rams, or sheep for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, or oil as the priests at Jerusalem require. Let that be given to them day by day without fail." that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. I also make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house and he shall be impaled upon it and his house shall be made a dunghill. May the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put out a hand to alter this or to destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem, I, Darius, make a decree. Let it be done with all diligence. Skip down to verse 19. So on the fourth day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover. They've finished the temple. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were clean. So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles for their fellow priests and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who returned from exile and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. Verse 22, and they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy. And then it says this, for the Lord had made them joyful and turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that he aided them in the work of the house of God of Israel. Father, I pray that you would take these words, even though we've taken portions, I ask, Lord, that you would speak so clearly to us. We just say again, Spirit of God, speak to us this morning. Direct your church, feed your church, grow your church, mature her, Lord, strengthen her, spirit of boldness in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that we would be certain and fixed, Lord, to the glory of your name. We thank you, Lord, in advance for what you will do. Amen. So I apologize. I've, I've just, I'm, for the sake of time, I'm editing, editing, editing. So I skipped a couple things that I, I wanted to point out. But one of the things was this, just because I think it's helpful. In terms of historical timeline, we come here now at this moment to essentially the end of the Old Testament recording of God's people. Now we look at our Bible and go, oh yeah, but we got all these books but the books are, that we're about to venture into are the prophets. And essentially, this is what will be. What God restores now is going to be characteristic of his remnant for the next 
almost 500 years until the New Testament begins. And I think that's helpful and also important because what it does is it gives us clarity as to why God is doing what he is doing. In other words, this is it in the Old Testament. What he's going to do with these men on through Nehemiah will be his final work within the Old Testament. Then we know what? There's approximately 400 years of silence from the last prophet in the Old Testament until the opening of Matthew when Christ is proclaimed and born. And so I just thought that was helpful for us also just to be mindful of where we are in God's story at this time. And so as I've read these portions, I was hoping that what we would do is we would just see so clearly or at least begin to see this picture of circumstances that have arisen. And so the Israelites are laboring, of course, again, to rebuild the temple. After having ceased, the Lord stirs up the spirit of the leaders. He stirs up the spirit of all the other remnant of the Israelites that have returned, and they begin the work once again. And it's interesting, while we might consider it as opposition, it isn't really opposition, it's more of questioning. That a local civic authority comes to them and says, wait a minute. Now remember, enough time has passed. Cyrus is no longer king. Darius is now the king. And so we could assume that there's something like roughly 20, 30, you know, years or so that has passed by. And it's enough time that these guys are going, wait a minute, what are these guys doing? Some guy walks up and he sees them laying, it says, large stones and timber in place. And so this questioning happens and an answer is given. And the Lord uses this circumstance to to stir something in his people again that they would resume with a resolve that we have not seen in decades thus far. And the question that I begin to ask myself is, what is God speaking to us today through these texts? What are we to glean? What are we to learn? What are we to be encouraged from? Again, we can study Old Testament from a historical perspective, which we should do, but we always should be looking for Jesus, church. We should always be looking to hear, God, how does this apply to this? Again, remember what Paul says that these things were examples and they were written for your warning. Speaking of the people of Israel. And so what I want to do is just begin with a question. It's a simple question. In what we just read, was it man's will or was it God's will that was working to complete the building of the temple? Was it man's will or was it God's will? Yeah, it's both. It was both God's will as we saw as God stirred the heart, but it was also the will of man as 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 emperors and kings made decrees and people would question and letters were written, things were happening seemingly just everyday occurrences and yet God was using and stirring and causing these things happen to happen to accomplish what he would want to accomplish. But what's important for us to know is that he doesn't just control all circumstances like a puppeteer controls a marionette. He gives us freedom to choose. He gives mankind free agency and, and, a, and a freedom to participate and co-labor alongside of God. Within historical theology, there's a word for this providential reality. And the word is concurrence, or if you were to study it, it's the doctrine of concurrence. Has anyone heard of this doctrine before, the doctrine of concurrence? Concurrence is is defined as this. It means that God cooperates with created things in every action, directing their distinct properties to cause them to act as they do. God cooperates with created things in what act? How many actions? Every action, directing their distinct properties to cause them to do as they do. This is also can be known as confluence. And I was thinking, you know, I live down by the uh, Discovery Park and underneath Discovery Bridge is where the Sacramento and the American River meet. And they converge into one river and they flow out through the delta into the Pacific Ocean. And the question is, what is, when those two converge, and although that's still called the Sacramento once they converge, but 
which waters, which bodies of waters are in effect in that moment? It's both. Both are at work. It's both the American and it's both the Sacramento that converge together to make this one single confluence, a body of water that moves together and flows out and sources the larger purpose. So it is with our experience, church. So it is with our lives. In reality, it's God who accomplishes all things, as Paul would say, according to the counsel of his will. It is God who accomplishes all things according to the counsel of his will. It's God that causes. It's God that allows. It's God that uses. It's God that facilitates all things according to the counsel of his will. And Paul would say in Philippians, and it is God who is at work to both what? Will and to work for his good pleasure. It's God who is at work. No event falls outside the realm of God's providence. Aren't we thankful for that? Think about that for a moment. In your life, aren't you thankful that not a single moment of your life to this minute has fallen outside the providence of God? And what does Paul say? All things. Brothers and sisters, think about your life right now. Maybe even think for a moment about the things you don't want to think about. And what is the promise that God uses that for this moment, for his purpose, for his good pleasure. What a joy that is. The providence of God, one of the best, most encouraging, joyful doctrines within Christian theology that, is, that possibly one could study and worship, that God uses all things according to his good pleasure. And I was thinking, gosh, if left to my own, my own schemes, what a mess I would make. Even if it was just a portion. If God was 99% providential and 1% hands off, what a mess I'd make of that 1%. If I make messes with him being fully providential in my life. So in five and six, I was struck by the contrasting and, and the co-working of what God, what, of what was God's work and what was man's work. And we see this convergence of the will of the people whereby having ceased working, they chose to stop working. But God chose to cause them to work again, to stir their spirits that they would take it up with a sense of determination in spite of the questioning even. Think about this, 15, 20 years earlier, don't you think they would have probably folded. I mean, at least we saw that in the opposition that they had come against all those years previously, what ended up happening was that they folded. But what was different now? What was happening in their hearts that they didn't fold under the pressure, they didn't fold under the questioning, but they were actually emboldened and reminded of who they were and what their purpose was. And it says this, that the eyes of the Lord or his eyes were on the elders of the Jews. And that Tatnai's questioning did not deter them. And what about Darius? Was it Darius that was acting alone in favor of the work? There's not any mention anywhere, unlike chapter 1, verse 1, where it says that the Lord stirred up the spirit of, the, of King Cyrus. Do you remember that? Seemingly, that is not happening, or at least it's not explicitly stated. Was it Darius that was working apart from God? But look again what it says in verse 14 of chapter 6. It says, And the elders of the Jews built and prospered. Oh, sorry, keep going. Through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet, it was this. They finished their building at the end of verse 14. By the decree of the God of Israel and by the decree of of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. It was both and. They completed their work by the will of man, and they completed their work by the will of God. 
It's the providence of God, brothers and sisters, that gives the Christian life a reason for hope, a reason for worship. It's the providence of God that is the comfort to the Christian life. And doesn't this statement here that they finished their building by the decree of God and by the decree of Cyrus give us such a, a clear reality of how God works? And this idea I was thinking of, this, this idea, church, of self-autonomy within culture that we, we somehow pursue this, this false reality of being completely free of constraints and oversight and external perspective and external input. I was thinking how bogus this is in reality because there's nothing that is outside of God. And for us as believers today, that we would not only again know this, but that we would live with such a conviction that yes, while we live and work out of free agency, it's God who is working through us to accomplish his purpose. And not just, this, not just it would be this statement of like, well, this is how it is, but that we would worship from this position of belief and hope and joy. This is what I'm hoping to anchor us in this morning. Self-autonomy is bogus. Nothing works outside of God's will and outside of God's determination. I heard R.C. Sproul one time, he was talking about the doctrine of providence. You guys know who R.C. Sproul is, right? And he said this. He said, I told my son one time when he got to the certain age, he said, you are free to make your own choices in this home. You're free to make your own decisions. However, never forget that I am more free than you are. That was how he described the doctrine of providence. We are free, church. God gives us free agency. Thank God. Why? Because he gets the most glory when we participate, when we exemplify submission and honor and reverence and worship through obedience and through faith. Could God cause us just to do whatever we wanted? Absolutely. He can do whatever he wants. But instead, in his wisdom and in his great pleasure, he chooses and allows us to have free agency. But yet our comfort and our joy is that he is always more free than we are. We might be free, but he is more free. And I begin to think of the extent of the significance of the glory that God would receive here in chapters 5 and 6. And seemingly all these things that are happening whereby God behind the scenes is influencing, but yet it just seems like man's decision to do this and to that. And I begin to think about why did God allow them at this point? Why did he stir their hearts to resist the opposition? And I begin to think about Darius and the decree that Darius would make. Could God have just kept the opposition at bay? He absolutely could have. But instead, he allowed them to come against questioning that a letter might be written, that a decree throughout the land might be made. And the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ is shown in even a greater degree than had he had just snapped his fingers, breathed his breath, spoken a word, and caused it to take place. What does it say when we read it? It said that the royal revenue was going to be open. And that all the resources of the civic powers were to be given to the people of God to accomplish the work. How much more glory could God receive than that? Recognition of the importance of the work. Recognition, now over here, keep your eyes over here. Don't look at the truck. Recognition of the importance of the work. Recognition of the God who is in a place of authority. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Is this making sense this morning? Okay. Lord Jesus, help us. I say all of this, brothers and sisters, to bring us to this point. I want us to, to remain here in a place of worship this morning. Because, listen, theology in an academic sense is nothing more than head knowledge unless the Spirit of God breathes life into it. Listen, I want to know and I want to understand but church, I want to live. I want to live in the truth of God's providence. 
I want to live in the joy of God's providence. I want to worship with you in the pleasure that it is knowing that God has my every second, that God has my, my in, in his deepest intent and care of his heart, that God uses my every moment to the glory of his name. What a place to worship from. In spite of both your past failings, past experiences, and future failings and future experiences, God will use all of those things and intends to, to bring glory into his name. We face this danger when confronted with a biblical truth of something as all-consuming as this type of discussion of providence and, and this doctrine of concurrence which falls under God's providence is that we could become fatalistic in our thinking. It's a bit like hyper-Calvinism which says, well, what's the point? If God knows those who he will call, why would we evangelize? But we know that that's contrary to what the word of God says, that God uses man to preach, that we don't know who God will call. So is the same with this in our life, brothers and sisters. We don't understand God's ways. We don't understand God's purposes always. We see in part, and by the grace of God, he allows us to see that it gives us faith to continue and to persevere. But we don't see fully. And so we must resist this idea, and I don't think that we necessarily are at risk of it, of becoming more fatalistic. I think if anything, our spectrum might swing the other way, where we're not aware enough of the providence of God in our life. And that our resolve isn't set enough whereby it gives us strength and stability. I think that's probably more where charismatic evangelicalism falls. It's more about the experience. And when we don't experience God, then we forget about what's actually true. But on the other end of, other end of that spectrum is that, well, then what's the point? Why bother with it all? If God's only going to do what he wills, what's the point of anything? Because after all, won't he just make it happen regardless of my initiation or regardless of my faith or regardless of my engagement? But again, that isn't how God works. He receives the glory when mankind's choices and our pursuits work together to further his kingdom. Because God is all about getting the most glory. Why? Because he's a narcissist? Because when God's glory is shown, mankind's hearts rejoice. They're humbled. They revere. They worship. They honor. They take their rightful place beneath a sovereign and providential God. Does this stir faith in you at all? I mean, you don't have to say yes if it isn't, but I hope that it is because that's what I'm hoping for this morning. So I would ask, do we view God's providence as him sovereignly acting without regard or without consideration to his creation? So in other words, do we see God's providence as just God being God doing what God does? Or do we see God's providence as this, an extension and an act of God's faithfulness? And this was what I was stirred in this week as I was reading chapter five and chapter six. Listen, I'm probably picking up a total sub-thread of these chapters right here because the work of the temple was just concluded and I'm not really talking about that. But I just felt like for us to be stirred and to be encouraged and for, for faith to not just be built, but to actually a measure of faith given and maintained. In other words, we mature to a place of faith that stabilizes us so deeply. So was God's providence just him sovereignly acting without regard, or do we see it as an extension and an aspect of the faithfulness of God? God spoke to Haggai the prophet, and we read it, and he said this. This is what stirred the hearts of the people. I am with you. Church, God says us to us today, I am with you. He says that to you today, I am with you. I love how that statement is what stirred the hearts of the people to pick up the work again, the faithfulness of God 
that he will never leave, that he will never abandon, that he is always with. Amen? He says to the people of Israel early on in Deuteronomy chapter 31, he says that his promise to them is that I am always with you, says the Lord. His promise remains that through all things, it is him who goes before us, that he, won't, that he is always with us, that he doesn't leave us or abandon us. And he says this in Deuteronomy 31, therefore, do not be dismayed. Do not be afraid. And so coming back to the people of Israel again, I was, in light of this, I was thinking about the sovereign will of God as it relates to their capitulation to the opposition that they had originally incurred as we read in chapter four. Why do you think that God allowed that? Why would he allow one opposition to succeed when another opposition would fail? Psalm 135 verse six says that whatever the Lord pleases, he does. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. See, this view of God's ways should never be cause for indifference in our lives, brothers and sisters. It should be cause for worship. That the Lord pleases, is pleased to do what he does. That should be cause for worship. It shouldn't be cause for this perspective that God is somehow distant from us. Psalm 97 was, one says, the Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. The Lord reigns, church, let the earth rejoice. Let God's people revel and rejoice at the sovereign providence of God because in his work, he proves himself faithful. He proves himself merciful. Through the works of God, by the hand of God, he proves himself powerful and mighty, victorious, compassionate, trustworthy, and on and on. This is how God shows himself to his people through his faithful providence. I was thinking about just maybe in an analogy to what I would hope God would do within us this morning. And I was thinking about a, a, a grounding wire in an electrical system. And I'm not an electrician by any means. And some of you can attest to that because I've called you for simple things. But a grounding wire, the purpose of a grounding wire is it runs like in your home through an electrical system, right? And should something outside of that closed or that open circuit system take place, say like a lightning bolt strikes a uh, electrical tower or whatever, and that power surge would come through your home and it would just pfft, obliterate everything. But a grounding wire, what it does is it reroutes that, that energy force and it dissipates it, it puts it in the ground and it dissipates it, minimizing the effect. And I was thinking, if we could come to a similar place in our hearts where the providence of God, the understanding how God works and how God uses our free will, but also is behind influencing everything, how that becomes a stabilizing force like a grounding wire in our life that minimizes and neutralizes all those effects from the world that would want to come in and just lop us off at the knees and take us out. That's what I'm praying for, for us as a church. Listen, the last couple of years, brothers and sisters, not everything has gone to plan, right? I mean, shoot, people lost people they loved. I mean, not to mention, you know, some of you I know experiencing frustration and disillusion with having to pivot with school or work you know, throwing you some curveball. I mean, and then everything else that we didn't get to just enjoy within the regular rhythm of life. Man, things were not as we expected. But I would say this, I thank God that he showed us what he showed us through it all and brought us through in the way that he did because I felt like God stabilized us. I felt like that the, just the sovereignty of God is really what we worshiped those last couple of years, that God was in control, that God is powerful, and that nothing is outside of the control of God. And providence and sovereignty go hand in hand with each other. 
But I was just so thankful that God stabilized us. And as I was praying about this this week and just saying, God, what do you want to speak to us as a church? It was that we would be stabilized, church. I think we know his sovereignty well, but do we lean and rejoice and worship in the providence of God? That God is working in all of our life to bring about his perfect will. And so just as... To, to land with a bit of a, maybe some fruit of what we might expect of a life that is stabilized like this in the providence of God. Actually, let me, let me say this first. I was thinking too, just to continue on, on worshiping as I did this week in, in God's providence, reading through five and six, and I was thinking about Haggai and Zechariah, and had the people not ceased and capitulated at first, God wouldn't have raised up Haggai and he wouldn't have raised up Zechariah to speak to his people again. And if you're familiar with Haggai and Zechariah, there's beautiful kingdom imagery and future kingdom prophecy beyond just stirring the people to the work of the temple. Zechariah's book, which is quite a bit lengthier than Haggai's prophecy, speaks majority of it. The inspiration for the people to resume the work comes from a picture of the future kingdom and the glory of the future kingdom. In Zechariah, we have prophecies of that Jesus would triumphantly enter into Jerusalem on a donkey. We have Judas's betrayal with the 30 pieces of silver in Zechariah, I believe it's chapter 12. It even, there's, there's, uh, there's alluding to the, the flesh of, by which grace would be poured out to mankind. And I was thinking all these beautiful things which we enjoy, these words of truth and life which stir us in faith, would not have been had the people not ceased to work. How thankful we can be. And I know that you can look at your own life and you can see how something that was meant for harm, as Joseph would say to his brothers in Genesis 50, God used for good, right? So it is, brothers and sisters, not just with them, but with us. All of our life, God is using all of these things for our good, his purpose as well. I'll finish quickly. What is fruit, what is fruit of a life that's anchored in the wonderful providence of God? There's a, a quick passing verse gives us a glimpse, I believe, of the fruit that, that this providence ought to and, and would and did produce in the Israelites. In the letter to King Darius, and we didn't read verses 8 through 9 of chapter 5, Tatnai says this. He's relaying to King Darius what the people of Israel said to him, and then he follows up with this statement in, in the end of verse 8 and the beginning of verse 9. He says that this work goes on. Now, this is Tatnai's words to Darius. The work goes on diligently and it prospers in their hands. And this was their reply to us. He says, we are servants of God, the people of Israel say to him. We are servants of the God of heaven and earth, and we are rebuilding this house. Church, I just, this is our statement today. We are servants of God most high. Say that with me. We are servants of God most high. And say this with me, and we are rebuilding this house. And we are rebuilding this house. We are servants of God Most High Church, and we are at work and co-laboring with God today. Their, their confidence came from knowing who they were. Man, we are servants. We are God's people. But the fruit was that the work carried on with great purpose and with diligence, and it was prosperous. I was thinking the word of the Lord through the mouths of the prophets, brought what was dead in the people of Israel back to life again. How true that is of us today. That the word of God has brought what was dead back to life. Israel knew who they were, and they knew what they were called to. The fruit of understanding God's providence, embracing it, and leaning into the grace that is contained, because church, there is grace in the providence of God. The fruit of it, of leaning into it and understanding it, and the result of God's word 
being revived and brought to life is diligence in prosperity in God's people. When we know who we are, when we know what we're called to, and when we know who is behind us at work and influencing, how much easier, church, how much more faith is there or should we have to continue on? Brothers and sisters, we have to find our story in God's greater story. It's not just about your family. It's not just about your work. It's not just about your goals that you have set for yourself in those things. It is what is God doing? And how do we join with him to bring the glory to him? Amen? That's the purpose of the church. That's why we're here today. That's why we open the word every week. And the word is taught and worship is sung so that God would stir us in faith, that God would remind us that he is at work, that he is at work, that he accomplishes all things according to the purpose of his will. I wanted to just read something, if you'd stand with me, just to end this morning. There was more, and I apologize if maybe that came off a bit disjointed today. As I said, I was just kind of editing, editing, editing as I went. But I think that what I was wanting to say was heard. And I just felt to end with this this morning as a bit of a confession together, church. If you're holding your Bible still, turn to the book of Romans. If you're not holding your Bible, grab it really quick. I want to read this to us and you can follow with me. In light of this, brothers and sisters, are you still with me? In light of this, church, May I read Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 28. In light of the providence of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom God, sorry, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? And I say this to you, church. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously Give us all things. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Is it God who justifies? Sorry, it is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of, the, of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it's written, for your sake we're being killed all day long, we're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, church, that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Brothers and sisters, it is God who is at work to accomplish all things according to his will and to his great pleasure. What then shall we say? We praise you. We worship you. We glory and give you glory. Lord, this morning... I thank you that your spirit is at work within us, Lord, breathing life and speaking to us through your word. And I pray, Father, just concerning this truth that was spoken of your providence, Lord, and how you are working alongside and using us to work alongside of you, Lord, in your plans here on the earth. I thank you, Father, that it is a great anchor to our soul, that it is a great stabilizer to our life, Lord. And I pray for those who have not yet perhaps considered enough of your great providence, Lord, whose lives are, are not planted firmly in this reality, Lord, would you place us today? 
Would you strengthen us, Father, not so that we would be without trial because we know that trials come, but Lord, that we would remain stand, uh, steadfast and that we would persevere, Lord, thus giving you the greatest glory. Father, I ask today to help us where we unbelieve, Lord, to help us where we lack faith. Strengthen this church, I pray, in a resolve. Strengthen her, Lord, to continue in light of all that we face this day. And Lord, we pray for this morning our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world, Father, who suffer this day, who face trial and tribulation, who face tyranny, war, persecution, Lord, even death. We pray for them this day. May we learn from them, Lord, and we ask that you would strengthen them by your grace. Father, teach the Western church, Lord, how to endure. Teach her how to remain strong, I pray. Pray for our brothers and sisters in the Ukraine this morning. Lord, may the church arise to be glorious. Prove yourself, Lord, to be strong. Keep the hand of the enemy at bay the physical and the spiritual, Lord. Preserve your church, preserve your believers, provide miraculously, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Give to them what is needed this day. And Father, in, even in this, what a reminder it is that you are at work. In all the unrest, in all the uncertainty, seemingly in the tyrannical oppression of rulers, Globally, Lord, you are at work. You're influencing. Your hand is moving. Lord, we praise your strong and mighty hand today. Help us to find our place, Lord, in your greater story to the glory of your name. Give us grace. Amen.